think the easiest way to understand the role of the teacher in Theravadan Buddhism is to relate several incidents where the Buddha spoke about himself and his function. And I think from it we can recognize without any difficulty what he considered the function of the one who is teaching the spiritual path. One is a story, a very famous story, of a man from Rajagaha. One day a man came to the Buddha and said to him that he had been listening to the discourses of the Buddha for a number of years and had met quite a lot of the monks and nuns during that time that were disciples of the Buddha and he had noticed that they were all listening to the discourses also and knowing them personally he had found out that some of them had changed enormously for the better over those years and some had remained exactly as they'd always been and some had deteriorated in their mental emotional makeup and yet they'd all been listening to the same discourse and he wanted to know why that was so the Buddha said to him where's your hometown the man said I'm from Rajagaha and uh, now living in Benares and the Buddha said and do you sometimes go back to your hometown and he said oh I go frequently regularly I still have family there and I have some business connections in Rajagaha so I have to get back there regularly and the Buddha said and do you know the way to Rajagaha from here he said if there's anyone that you know who would like to be advised how to get there please send them to me I can't imagine that there's anyone who knows the way better I can do it and go there in the dark and I know all the difficulties on the road and I know all the crossroads I've been up and down that road that many times so if there's anyone in need of the directions please send them to me and the Buddha said, oh, I quite believe you. But now, if you were to give directions to a person how to get from here to Rajagaha in the best possible way, and that person would never start on his journey, but stay right here in Benares, would it be your fault that they didn't get to Rajagaha? And the man said, no wouldn't be my fault I'm only the shore of the way the Buddha said exactly that's what I am too I'm only the shore of the way now this is a very famous saying of the Buddha I'm only the shore of the way which quite clearly states his abhorrence of the dependency on a guru now obviously he was born and taught in India and his environment was Brahmanism which is preceding Hinduism and the guru disciple relationship was well established and is well established but the Buddha said that is not the way one should approach a spiritual path he said I'm only the shower of the way if you don't travel the road I show you you're going to stay right where you are which was one of his 
reform ideas of the Brahminical religion which had deteriorated to not only a guru-disciple relationship but also to a worship and devotion and rites and rituals concept which he wanted to improve upon. As is usually the case, it didn't improve the established religion, the established spiritual path. All it did was start a new one. And we find exactly the same in Christianity. Jesus was trying to reform Judaism, which needed it badly. He was throwing the money changers out of the temple and so forth. And what happened? He didn't reform it at all. Established a new religion, which is, one could probably say, not the intention of the spiritual master, but an outcome of the lack of understanding of the disciples. So that was one of the facets which was very strong in the Buddha's mind. It is not the role of the teacher in the Buddhist dispensation to impart any kind of grace, any kind of ability, any kind of darshan, which is what is done in India, the sort of um, special blessing. The teacher, as the Buddha was then, function is strictly to show how to get there by oneself, to do every step on the way. Now the Buddha took enormous pains, as you know, to describe each step in the greatest of detail. But if one doesn't do it, what good does it do for anyone? There's a Another, as, uh, another story which shows the same aspect. There was a monk, a disciple of the Buddha, a follower of the Buddha, who was so infatuated with the Buddha that he followed him around wherever the Buddha went. But didn't actually listen very well to what was being said. He was just completely infatuated with the Buddha's person, his stature, his compassion, his intelligence, his way of dealing with the, all the difficulties which a large following always entails. And one day this monk became sick and had to take to his bed. His sickness wasn't very serious, but he was moaning and groaning. So a fellow monk came to see him and said to him, Why are you moaning and groaning? You'll be well in a few days. It's not that serious. And the monk said, It isn't because of my sickness that I'm moaning, it's because I'm confined to my bed and I can't see the Buddha. So the fellow monk said, well, that's uh, not such a great tragedy. Well, tell the Buddha about it and surely he'll come and visit you. So they did and the Buddha came to visit this monk and inquired about his health and uh, had a few words with him, and then he said to him, Who sees me sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma sees me. The monk understood. When he got well and got up, he started listening to what he was being told and did not follow the Buddha around anymore. Who sees me, the Buddha, sees nothing other then, the Dhamma in action, 
and the Dhammas, the law, the law of nature, the absolute truth, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. Because the Buddha means the enlightened one, and he didn't want this monk to see a particular person there, but he wanted him to see the possibility of enlightenment. And who sees the Dhamma sees me. If one sees the Dhamma, that means in seeing. That means the Dhamma becomes an integral part of one's own inner being under all circumstances, not just when the going is good. And when it becomes an integral part, one realizes impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and substancelessness and then one sees enlightenment, which is what the Buddha was. In seeing means that there is an inner reality. That inner reality has to be worked for. Nobody is given it. Some people have determination. Some people have understanding. And they have that inner feeling that they really want to do that. But some are looking for the easy way out. There is no easy way out. All the roads for the easy way out are blocked. So this monk realized what the Buddha was telling him that who sees the Buddha sees only the Dhamma and who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha because when we do see the Dhamma in here then that's enlightenment that we see. Again, a negation of the personal attachment to a certain teacher. There is another story about the um, charioteer of the Buddha. Now when the Buddha was still an unenlightened Bodhisattva, namely the prince Siddhartha Gautama, he made up his mind to leave the palace and search for enlightenment. And his charioteer Chanda went with him only as far as the Buddha went on his horse and then the Buddha sent him back because he wanted to go alone and find the truth and later he said he'd come back and impart this truth to all the family and all the servants and this charioteer later when the Buddha had the uh, following of the Sangha, became a monk. But he considered the Buddha sort of a, a personal a part of his personal family because he'd been with him since the Buddha was a young man. And so he'd go around and saying, well, my Buddha said, and... Uh, uh, when, when my Buddha was still in the palace um, I used to do this and that for him and he wouldn't let other monks do things that they were supposed to do and say uh, no, no, uh, that's my Buddha, I'm going to do that so till the Buddha forbade him to talk like that because um, he was not only was he aggravating the other monks but anything that's mine whatever it is, even if it's the best thing that one can get, namely the Buddha, is contrary to enlightenment. 
and anything that's contrary to enlightenment produces dukkha. So he forbade him to talk like that and he eventually did stop that. He actually got into such a um, difficulty with the other monks that nobody wanted to talk to him anymore. And finally he, he understood what this was all about. Now there is another aspect of the teacher in this dispensation. And again there is a, a story which will illustrate it. The um, cousin of the Buddha was Ananda and he was his attendant for 25 years and they were very close. Many of the uh, discourses are answers to Ananda's questions. And one time Ananda said to the Buddha, Sir, a good friend is half of the holy life or spiritual life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the spiritual life. Now a good friend in Pali is a Kalyana Mitta. And a Kalyana Mitta is also the description of the meditation teacher. So the meditation teacher is under in that understanding the best friend that one can get because of the fact that hopefully a meditation teacher is in a position to show one the way to liberation. And not only that, but a noble friend is the prerequisite for our antidote, for our hindrances. Now, with the five hindrances, they all have different antidotes, but they have one common one. Noble friends and noble conversation. So, not only is it the noble friend is the meditation teacher, but also there is that injunction by the Buddha not to associate with fools, but with the wise ever consorting, which are the first two blessings in the Mahamangala Sutta, the discourse on the great blessings. Now, a fool is not necessarily a person who hasn't got any education. It's not meant like that. A fool in Pali is a bala, and a bala is also a child, a ch person that hasn't matured, childish person. So one should find wise people. But in the case of the meditation teacher, which is a very important aspect of the whole path, because somebody's got to show the way. There are other aspects which also should have uh, a hearing, namely the fact that the Buddha considered a person who has complete faith and confidence, where there's absolutely no skeptical doubt as a minor stream enter without having had the past moment. Now this is a very interesting fact because faith and confidence in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in the teaching, in the enlightened great teacher and in the Sangha were propagating the teaching. Now that faith and confidence it should not be ill-placed. It should be co-joined with wisdom. One should know when one hears the truth. Now I see a person that is unable to give themselves completely are usually people who find it very difficult 
to love unconditionally. They love and want to be loved. But in this dispensation, that doesn't work. If one doesn't give oneself completely to the teaching and the practice without expecting an immediate result, one can't do it. So the faith and confidence that he is required in the teaching and the teacher coupled with wisdom has to be based on the fact that one has enough discrimination. In other words, an intelligent enough mind that's awake and aware and alert to know when the truth is being spoken. And when that happens, when one has that kind of mind that one knows what's going on, I mean there are millions of people who wouldn't know. And even if they get near to the Dhamma, they still don't know. But if one has that kind of mind that realizes when truth is being spoken, then the faith and the confidence which arise bring joy to the heart. And that faith and confidence and joy are the prerequisites for the depth of meditation. I have noticed over and over again that those people who listen to the instructions and then actually follow them have the best results. Those who think that they know anyway or that they could improve upon the instructions or could change them to make them a little more palatable have no results whatsoever. And then, of course, then there are those who don't listen. But um, that is usually a great difficulty and it's due to the fact that the mind just isn't awake enough. The real results come when the instructions are followed minutely. And the instructions are minute, given by the Buddha. So the faith and confidence which is needed actually also carries with them a devotion. Because faith and confidence one can only have if there is love. And devotion is also coupled with love. Those people who manage that have the quickest and the best results. The mind is needed with its intellectual processes to understand the teaching and the instructions. Without that, there's nothing happening. But the heart, with its feeling capacity, is needed to love the practice. When those two come together, heart and mind, working in conjunction, and both being totally engaged, the results are quick and quite remarkable. In fact, they are exactly what the Buddha said they should be. Maybe that doesn't make them so remarkable because he said that's what's going to happen. So this kind of um, giving of oneself is a wholehearted engagement. And only a wholehearted engagement brings wholehearted results. A half-hearted engagement usually brings very little results. And because of that, that practice then falls apart again. When heart and mind are completely in unison and know exactly that they want to follow this path, then 
the mind is the one that directs the the um, the steps and the heart is the one that is devoted to and those two together are necessary that devotion and that faith and confidence should not be confused with a, an expectation that that's what one is devoted to or the one the one one is devoted to will do anything for one it's a different outlook at entirely in this teaching we have to give ourselves without wanting to get those who want to get usually have no results at all they want to get something but there's nothing to get there's everything to give namely oneself eventually one has to give oneself up entirely and those who are willing to give one give themselves to the teacher and the teaching are the ones that are gaining the greatest advantage and benefit At the end of his life, the, um, the Buddha again talks about the teaching and the teacher. This is the Maha Parinibbana Sutta. Parinibbana is the death of the Buddha. It means Nibbana without a remainder. Now he attained Nibbana at age 35 but the remainder is this body which is still creating difficulties but at the end of life then there's nibbana without remainder and maha means great so it's the great discourse on nibbana without remainder maha pa nibbana so the very famous um discourse it's called in english the buddha's last days it talks about many of the uh, uh, last days. Ananda is standing next to the Buddha and is asking what will happen now that the teacher is dying. And so the Buddha said, Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this. So what I have taught and explained to you as Dhamma and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. So again, no guru, nobody doing anything for anybody. Dhamma and discipline, that's the teacher. And the last words of the Buddha are, Now, monk, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. These are the most famous words of the Buddha. They were the last ones. And they tell just the same story over again. Do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. Everything is conditioned and therefore decaying and so one has to strive in order to find release from that this is the typical way of the Buddha's teaching pragmatic, realistic, all seat on the ground asking everybody to do it for themselves and in this, um, in this Mahaparinibbana Sutta especially one can see that quite clearly also, many of the suttas, and you have heard that already, that um, the Buddha instructs his disciples. Here, a monk gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down 
having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, established mindfulness before him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. I've got to go and do it. Nobody will do anything for him. There are the instructions, there are the empty huts, there are the roots of trees. That's where everyone goes and does it. And the um, idea that the teacher should be in certain ways and should have certain, should do certain things has always been detrimental to those who had those ideas and the Buddha often refutes those. There are numbers of discourses where Brahmins, which were usually the um, antagonists of the Buddha, come to inquire about him whether he can do this or that and he usually uh, refutes that by saying none of those things are important that you're mentioning they're talking about um, minor matters all that matters is to get rid of all the taints of all the cravings and he often is able to convince these antagonists of the validity of these statements. Not always. Not everybody can be convinced. Some people's minds just aren't ready. They're just not ready for that kind of um, work that one has to do oneself. The role of the teacher in this dispensation is one of the shower of the way. That's all it is. Whether that way is correct or not, everybody has to find out for himself. And then, having found out for oneself, then one may be able to have the kind of complete devotion which results in the past moment. Because the past moment, the first one, takes away all skeptical doubt. And until then, there's always that little niggling doubt. Maybe there's something easier that doesn't require so much strenuous effort. Maybe there's something that what could, could have would go quicker. All sorts of ideas which never amount to anything because this is what the world is showing us the easy way, the instant way, the instant way to gratify the senses. The teacher that the Buddha was is a tradition which has been dutifully followed by the Sangha over two and a half thousand years. But naturally, not all the Sangha is enlightened and so often there are uh, aberrations and mistakes being made. That's natural. That can't be helped. But yet, particularly in this tradition, the traditional role of the teacher has been well preserved in many instances. Doesn't mean that all the students can benefit by it but it certainly is well in the following the Buddhist um, example. The Buddha did send out his monks to teach. He said, go, your, go out into the world and preach the true Dhamma to those who want to hear. In other words, it was his way of teaching that he would answer questions, ask his monks to do this, go and ask, answer questions, and preach to those who want to hear, not like knocking on uh, doors and 
trying to convince and convert people. There's no, uh, ever was there any idea of converting people to Buddhism. If they wanted to hear and then realize that they were hearing the truth, then they came and became the followers of the Buddha. And it's the same today. We never go any place where we're not invited. It's never happened. We only go to a place where we're invited. And if we're invited, it is um, to be expected that people want to hear. But no monk or nun goes to anywhere where they're not invited. That can be said with, with uh, certainty. Uh, the only obligation that anyone feels to teach would come from the fact that the person, him or herself, has seen a greater truth which has removed or reduced suffering and out of compassion than that person teaches. And these are words of the Buddha also which are often mentioned namely that he taught out of compassion so that others could also have the elimination of all dukkha and that would be the only consideration which would have any compulsiveness about it uh, anything else strictly voluntary Nobody would force anybody to, to, to teach or there's no, it doesn't have, it's not part of the, um, the training at all. Some people have the ability and others don't, but it is that feeling of compassion which induced the Buddha to teach and which would then induce teachers uh, in that dispensation to do the same. Yesterday, in the uh, discourse, was mentioned that um, right view has to be assisted by five factors. Virtue, learning, converse, peace, and insight, or common insight. And virtue, I told you, has ten aspects. So I will talk about one of them, the first one, the first one's generosity. Now the first of any of the lists which exist is not at the top of the list because the others are less important, but it's at the top of the list because it provides the access. Just like mindfulness is at the top of the list of the seven factors of enlightenment, without mindfulness there's no access. Without generosity there's no access. Now generosity means many things. In the first instance, it means helping other people with money, material goods, giving one's time, listening to them, being less self-centered than is the usual case in this world by being interested to see that others fare well. Generosity of the heart is unconditioned love. Generosity is a feeling for others which goes hand in hand with compassion and if one is able through meditation to see the totality of all existence which happens in the higher jhanas generosity is not difficult because one knows one's only helping oneself there's nobody that isn't oneself Unfortunately, our world that we live in, the humanity that we know, is completely other than generous. 
everybody's concerned with their own personal well-being and their own personal wishes and desires and the more personal wishes and desires one has the, m- the more one is unhappy every wish, every desire brings unhappiness if one is totally obsessed with oneself which many people are one can't even learn anything new because the obsession is so strong that the attention span becomes so short that one doesn't know what is being taught an obsession with self is the greatest cause for grief and lamentation and despair and can often result in depression if it isn't stopped and um, reversed it will result in depression for generosity is also a measure to give the mind a certain equanimity because as long as one is obsessed with self one has one problem after another because self always has problems there's no way it can't happen but if self is let go momentarily and one cares for others and cares about others and cares to do something for others then for those moments there is no problem and then as that happens there is a feeling of ease and contentment generosity was compared by the Buddha or described by the Buddha of three different kinds the generosity of a beggar of a friend and of a king the generosity of a beggar is a generosity where one is interested in other people just as long as it doesn't bother one as long as one isn't bothered by anything one doesn't have any doesn't have to give extra time one doesn't have to give extra effort one doesn't have to give extra money one doesn't have to give extra heart quality one doesn't have to give anything extra one is just um, available when it pleases one in a material sense it's giving away the things one doesn't want anyway like cleaning out one's cupboards and getting rid of the junk the generosity of a friend is sharing sharing what one has in equal parts and sharing time sharing abilities sharing skills sharing knowledge being available no matter whether it's convenient or not personal convenience is no longer an item but the generosity of a king is so rare that such people become famous like um, for instance Sister Teresa in Calcutta that's the generosity of a king she's giving herself completely very few people do it's a giving without expecting anything in return it's an understanding that there's nothing to get in this world nothing everything is already there there's nothing that we can get but there's a lot we can give and if we do we have at least the opportunity to improve that little spot on this globe where we happen to be the Buddha also said that the purity of the receiver purifies the gift that means that one needs to use some wisdom and intelligence where one gives whether one gives to a pure person, pure organization 
where the receiver, because of his or her purity, purifies baptism. Generosity was considered by the Buddha the first of all virtues, without which there is no access, because it is the beginning of recognizing the fact that if I'm only self-concerned, I'll never find a way out of Dukkha. Self always wants something. And as long as we want, there's Dukkha. But as long as we give, we can't have Dukkha because there's nobody wanting. Now the giving itself brings immediate good karma because the giving itself brings happiness. There's a feeling of joy and happiness. So that immediate good karma that we recognize there in our own feelings doesn't have to result in anything that we now get. But the interesting part of it is that the of love it's quite obvious. The more we give, the more we've got. We couldn't give it if we haven't got it. So the same applies to everything we give, but people don't believe it. But one could try it out, but most people are much too scared to try that out. That the more one gives away, the more one has. But one has to give it away with wisdom. With the wisdom to know where it does some good. It's useless to just um, divest oneself of things because one hopes that one then will get something for it. If that kind of thought is in the mind, it's guaranteed not to work. The same as when we give away love and want to have it back. It's guaranteed not to work. Giving is only giving when it's done for giving's sake. And it's only done for giving's sake when we see ourselves as part of the whole. And preferably as the whole itself. If we see ourselves like that, then there's no reason why anyone should keep anything. In the end, we've got to give away everything, body and mind, which we believe is ours. So, since we will have to give that away anyway, it's just as well to start a little earlier and get used to that giving away. And doing it with a feeling of relief and release. The less one carts around with one of material possessions, the easier life is. All material possessions are burdens. Just think of a car for a moment. The burden of a car is quite immense. Or a house. Anything that one has needs repair, cleaning, renewal. Because it all is compounded and conditioned. So the less one has, the freer one feels. And as one gives things or material goods for good causes, which one considers a good cause. One needs a little bit of wisdom to know what's a good cause and what isn't. The benefits that accrue from that are quite amazing. Because good karma generates good karma. But if we are generous in order to get good karma, it doesn't work. So the uh, 
progression of our deeds always has results. There's no way that it can't have a result. We can be quite sure that anything we do will have a result. And that applies, of course, on both sides. The opposite of generosity is greed. Wanting to have and wanting to keep. And this wanting to have and wanting to keep is a movement towards oneself and it is always connected with difficulty because nothing can be kept everything is moving and that what we want to get is obviously connected to dissatisfaction otherwise we wouldn't want it so the contented mind is a mind that can give and the mind that gives can become contented. That's enough on that subject. Tomorrow I'll go on with the other virtues. Any question about any of this or anything else that I've said? Or not said, maybe. Yeah, but if you give something to somebody because the thing is impermanent anyway, it's not very kind, is it? Because for the other person it's just as impermanent. It doesn't have loving kindness in it, does it? You just want to get rid of all this impermanent stuff. <laughs> so somebody else can worry about it. <laughs> but it, it is part of the understanding, I mean, that way you're quite right that there's no need to keep anything uh, because it's all going to go anyway but the generosity of giving needs a little more than just that it needs also the wish to help and to be because whatever is good for another person is also good for us you see if you have happy people around you it's much easier to live of course, we can't make everybody happy, it's impossible. <laughs> Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of yourself as part of this whole environment around us humanity, the globe, 
and the universe embedded safe and secure part of the whole manifestation not separate not one amongst many but part of it all now let your heart expand become immeasurably wide giving love to the whole of existing manifestation people nature animals earth sky part of you you part of it the heart immeasurably big to love all of it Now think of anyone or more people whom you don't love, whom you dislike maybe, find very difficult. See them as part of the whole of manifestation, the universe, the globe, humanity, embedded in it. So let these people or this person have the same love that you've given to the whole, no difference. Think of a busy city street at noontime, full of people. Let your heart encompass them all, loving them, compassionate towards them. Hearing.
think of your own dukkha and have compassion with it and then infer that the same dukkha rests in everyone's heart let compassion flow from your heart to all those people whom you know now pick out a very important person in your life and recognize that person's dukkha and let compassion flow see the dukkha of humanity as a whole and let compassion flow the dukkha and everything that grows and decays human or otherwise and let compassion flow Feel the expansion of your heart encompassing all that exists with love and compassion. Recognizing each one of us is part of the whole. not separate all together your attention back on yourself letting love and compassion flow from your heart to yourself
May there be love and compassion in all beings' hearts.